0: Looking tonight, dealing with the devil, dealing with the
1: devil. Second Kings sixteen and seventeen. Let's go ahead and read all of chapter sixteen, and probably only have time just to give sort of an overview of seventeen, and I'll let you read more seventeen on your own, and. Uh, let me also say, right on your note page, Isaiah 7 through 9. That's your homework too. Isaiah 7 through 9. Because what we're going to talk about tonight at one point, Isaiah 7 through 9 is going to be further commentary on it. Okay? Got that? What are you reading from? Translation. Uh, tonight I'm reading from the NIV. You ready? 2 Kings 16. In the 17th year of uh, Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Then Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Aramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem and besieged Ahaz, but they could not overpower him. Aram there, mentioned in verse 5, would be which country? Syria. Syria. Mm -hmm. At that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram by driving out the people of Judah. Edomites then moved into Elath and have lived there to this day. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Anybody in here name your son (laughs) Tiglath-Pileser? Okay. I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aaron and of the king of Israel who were attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria com- uh, complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Ker and put resin to death. Then king Ahaz went to Damascus to meet tiglath Pleaser, king of Assyria, He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offering and grain offering, poured out his drink offering, and splashed the blood of his fellowship offerings against the altar. As for the bronze altar that stood before the Lord, he brought it from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest on the large new altar... Offer the burnt offering and the evening grain offering, the king's burnt offering and his grain offering, and the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering and their drink offering. Splash against this altar the blood of all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. But I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. And Uriah the priest did just as King Ahaz had ordered. King Ahaz cut off the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands. He moved the sea... "...from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been built at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. As for the other events of the reign of Ahaz and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried with him in the city of David. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. Uh, Neville Chamberlain was convinced that Adolf Hitler was a reasonable and trustworthy man. As the Prime Minister of Great Britain in the late 1930s, Chamberlain was committed to keeping his nation out of war. He was sure if he met some of the Nazi leaders' demands that Hitler would be satisfied and would agree to live peaceably with the rest of Europe. Now, unfortunately, appeasing Hitler meant breaking treaty commitments to friendly nations. But Chamberlain felt it was the price he had to pay. And so on September 29, 1938, Britain, France, Germany, and Italy all signed the Munich Pact. Chamberlain returned home, some of you will remember, in uh, triumph, waving the new treaty and proclaiming that it meant peace in our time, peace with honor. Well, his claim was received with great popular relief and acclaim, but there was one man who was not convinced. His name was Winston Churchill. Churchill observed that an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile, hoping that it will eat him last. He arose in the House of Commons to voice a lonely but prophetic opinion Britain and France had to choose between war and dishonor, he said. They chose dishonor. They will have war. They should know that we have passed a terrible milestone, and do not suppose that this is the end. This is only the first sip, the first foretaste of a bitter cup. Who was right? Winston Churchill. Hitler was like a hungry crocodile in Churchill's words. Compromise with that type of a man is disastrous. When you deal with the devil, all you get is burned. Now in these chapters that we're turning to tonight, we're going to see that Israel is going to reach the end of the line. It's a major turning point in Old Testament history. Remember what we said at the beginning of this study? You had Israel and Judah together, a united nation. And then after Rehoboam came to power, Solomon's son, the nation divided. Uh, There was the northern kingdom, or Israel, and there was the southern kingdom, or Judah. God would judge first the northern kingdom, Israel. They would reach the end of their line, as we'll see tonight. And they don't factor in the Old Testament history anymore. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom are going to fade away, while the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, are still there because although God will send them into Babylonian exile for 70 years, he'll bring them back because, remember, the Messiah is going to come through the line of Judah. So God preserved the southern kingdom. Uh, Now, as far as the northern kingdom Israel, we're going to see that Assyria will invade Israel. Not Syria, but Assyria. Assyria will invade Israel, kill many of them off, scatter others, and resettle other peoples of the world into the land of Israel. And so all of God's people in the north, in the northern kingdom, are going to lose all of their distinctiveness that God intended his people to have. And they will end up becoming what is known in Bible history as the Samaritans, the half-breeds that the Jews in the time of Jesus would have nothing to do with. <laughs> Uh, Now, some of them, though, who wanted to remain uh, true to God and true to their heritage, they escaped to the southern kingdom, and they intermingled with them. Now, amazingly, and something that's very disappointing, too, the king of the southern kingdom, the king of Judah, would only turn right around and follow in the footsteps of his northern neighbor. Now, what we're going to see in chapter 16 is that the king of the southern kingdom tried to feed the crocodile. He tried to feed the crocodile, and he ends up paying a huge price for himself and for his people. And what we're going to see in this tonight is the poison of compromise. The poison of compromise. Again, when you deal with the devil, you get burned. The first thing I want you to notice with me tonight is the cancer of idolatry. The cancer of idolatry in the first four verses of chapter 16 on your study guide here. Immediately, who are we introduced here? We're introduced to a man by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz is the son of Jotham. Now we saw last week that Jothan was a brief, bright spot. He was the son of Uzziah. Uzziah helped Judah enjoy 52 years of prosperity. But remember, Uzziah the king got greedy, And he went into the temple and he was determined he was going to not only be king, but he was going to act as the high priest, and he was going to burn incense to God. And when the priests tried to stop him, he refused. And so God struck him with leprosy. And once he was struck with leprosy, he had to be quarantined. And from that point on, Uzziah lived in separate quarters while his son Jothan was co-regent with him. Now, Jothan was a pretty good king. The assessment of his reign was largely positive. But now after Jothan, Ahaz, his son, becomes king, and Ahaz is the worst of them all so far. Now, folks, isn't it amazing how generations of a family can be so different? And we see that in the Bible, too, don't we? I think of Eli, the priest Eli, had wicked sons. I think of Samuel, the first judge of Israel and how righteous he was, a judge and a prophet. But the people wanted a king because they said, Samuel, your sons are not like you. So oftentimes in the Bible, we see a godly father might have wicked sons we'll see that a wicked father might have godly sons. It's just amazing how that happens. Well, Ahaz is absolutely terrible. Not only did he continue the pattern of idolatry that that we've seen so often in many of these kings, he even accelerated it. Look at what he does here in verse 3. What's he do there that's so appalling? He offers his son as a burnt offering to pagan gods. Now, folks, that's the kind of junk that the Canaanites did. And God's people were forbidden from doing such as that. They were uh, the, the Israelites and the people of Judah were told that their children were a blessing from the Lord. And their children were their heritage. But here's a man taking his blessing from God, his son, and offering his blessing in a fire to a pagan god. I mean, it is absolutely unbelievable the low levels to which Ahaz has sunk. And I think it shows us something of the cancerous nature of sin and idolatry. Sin and idolatry just spreads. It gets worse and worse and worse. And folks, that's why we've got to deal with sin in our lives. Because sin, left unchecked, tends to get worse and worse. And we grow callous to what we're doing and we end up with hard hearts. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. I die daily. We've got to deal with sin. Second thing I want you to see tonight is the cowardly king. Verses 5-9 to of chapter 16. The cowardly king. Now the background of these verses is that Assyria is the world power by now. Now the Assyrians were a ruthless and wicked people. Who, Who was it in the Old Testament that did not want to go and prophesy to the Assyrians? Jonah. You know, Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. When God told him to arise and go to Nineveh, what did Jonah do? He went the other direction. The Assyrians have been referred to as the 8th century version, the 8th century B.C. version of the Nazis. They were such a wicked people and so violent with what they did to the people they attacked and conquered. They were so ruthless that oftentimes entire cities or villages, when they knew they were about to be overtaken by the Assyrians, the entire city or village would commit suicide. Nobody wanted to fall into the hands of the Assyrians. Now, because the Assyrians were flexing their muscles in the region, the king of Syria... And the king of Israel thought that if they could get the king of Judah to join in with them, so then you'd have Syria, Israel, and Judah. Those three kings and their armies, they thought if they could do that, they could stand a better chance of being able to stand up to the Assyrians. Okay? Uh, Because neither Jothan nor Ahaz now would join in with the king of Syria and the king of Israel, Pekah and Rezin, because uh, Ahaz wouldn't join in. Syria and Israel, they were going to attack Judah, take Ahaz off of the throne, put a puppet king on the throne who would join in with the king of Syria and Israel. And be that three strand cord that could stand up to Assyria. That's what's behind verse 5. And again, what I tell you a moment ago about Isaiah, you read (laughs) Isaiah 7 through 9, and that's that's everything that's going on there in Isaiah 7 through 9. Isaiah 7 tells us that the hearts of Ahaz and his people were so scared. That they shook like trees. That's pretty descriptive of their fear, right? Think about how they felt. Because here was Assyria threatening the whole region. And to top it off, here's Israel and Syria coming against you too. The king and the people of Judah had every reason to be afraid. These were very turbulent times. And Judah seemed to be in a no-win situation. And so what did God tell Isaiah the prophet to do? God told Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz and tell Ahaz, don't worry. Stand still and trust God. God said, trust me, Ahaz. These two kings... The king of Syria and the king of Israel are nothing more than little smoldering stumps. They're done for. Don't be afraid of them. Don't listen to them. Keep your faith in God. Trust in me for deliverance. That was God's message to Ahaz. Now, that should have been a tremendous encouragement to Ahaz. God was even willing to give Ahaz a sign. You remember that in Isaiah 7? God said, ask for a sign. And Ahaz in false piety says, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. That wouldn't be a good show of faith. Now, usually we would agree with Ahaz, you don't ask God for signs all the time. Uh, But in this case, Ahaz was wrong because God told him, to ask for a sign. If God tells you to ask for a sign, you better ask for a sign. It'd be disobedience not to ask. Why didn't Ahaz want to ask God for a sign? Because Ahaz already had his own plan in his back pocket. Ahaz didn't want God messing up the plan he'd already come up with. And so Ahaz is just hiding behind false piety. I'm not going to ask for a sign. Uh, So what's Ahaz's plan to do? What's this plan in Ahaz's back pocket that he's going to do? Instead of asking God for a sign. Now, believe it or not, what his plan is, of all things, He's going to call the enemy himself. He's going to call Tiglath-Pleaser, get his AT&T card out, and dial up Assyria, and say, hey, I need to talk to your king. So that's what he does. He calls the Hitler of his day, Tiglath-Pleaser, the king of the Assyrians. And he says, Hey Tiggy, come and save me. The king of Syria and the king of Israel want to go to war with me. Knock me off the throne. Put a puppet king on the throne who will join in with the two of them and stand up against you. So will you come and help me? What an ignorant thing to do to call, to call Tiglath pleasers. I mean, here you have God's protection, God's promise of protection, but he doesn't want God's promise of protection. He's going to roll the dice and go with Tiglath-Pileser instead, and that's exactly what he does. You read on in the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah lambasts Ahaz for this, and then Isaiah promises that Ahaz will not find what he's looking for In the Assyrians, the king of Assyria, Uh, Isaiah goes on to tell Ahaz that God's ultimately going to be the one to deal with Assyria, and God's also going to deal with Syria and Israel, and God's going to deliver his own people. And ultimately, Isaiah gives one of the greatest prophecies in the the entire Old Testament that God's going to ultimately deliver his people one day through the Messiah, Isaiah 9 says a virgin, or or Isaiah 7 rather, says a virgin will be with child. And then in in, uh, Isaiah 9, the government will be upon his shoulders, and you'll call his name Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there will never be an end. Isaiah 7 to 9 is a promise of God's ultimate answer. He's telling Ahaz, Ahaz, you're going to miss out on God's present deliverance. But worse yet, you and your people are also going to miss out on God's ultimate deliverance that will come one day. He's saying to Ahaz, if you and your people don't learn to trust God, you're going to miss the immediate and the future salvation of God. In other words, Ahaz needed to see that what he was about to trust wouldn't save him. And he was in danger of missing out on the only one who really could save him. But folks, isn't this this kind of the same with us? If we trust anything other than God, not only are we trusting in what will not save us, but we've also been deceived and we're going to miss out on the one who can save us. A failure to trust God is not only disappointing, but it's damning as well. Again, what do you think Ahaz did? Did he go with God or did he trust Tiglath-Pileser? He trusted Tiglath-Pileser. And in verse 7, he says, Hey, I'm your servant, your son. Verse 9 says, He took all the treasures out of the house of God and he sent them as a gift to Tiglath-Pileser. And verse 9 says Tiglath-pleaser came into Syria, killed the king of Syria, took the people captive. And if we were to go back to chapter 15, verse 29, we're told that that Tiglath-pleaser also took Israel captive as well during this time. So Ahaz has made a terrible choice. Now, what else? what, What does. What does Ahaz do now? The third thing I want you to see about him is the puppet on a string. The puppet on the string. Verses 10 to 20 of chapter 16. Verse 10 says that he went up to Damascus. Where was Damascus? It was in Syria. He goes up to Damascus to meet with Tiglath-Pileser. He's having to go up there to feed the crocodile. He's having to go up there and and kiss up to Tiglath-Pileser. Tiglath-Pileser has brought the Assyrians in and, like I say, wiped out the Syrians and the king of Syria. And the king of Judah, Ahaz, goes up to Damascus to meet him there. And... uh, Feed the crocodile. Notice about this, this altar. We read about this altar. It, it's a Syrian altar. Or it could even be an Assyrian altar. Since Syria is now defeated by Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser has probably had the Syrian altars torn down and Assyrian altars erected. And Ahaz sees this. And so kissing up to Tiggy, he orders the priest in Judah to build an exact replica of this altar. He takes all the sacred things in the temple at Jerusalem. He changes all those sacred things around. He moves them to secondary places and he sacrifices and worships at a pagan altar. All of this is to appease the Assyrian king. Not only is he becoming an idolater, he's a coward. And he's now a puppet on Tiglath-Pileser's leash. And and he's this pathetic little figure trying to copy and emulate the king of Assyria. Folks, I, I think it's a powerful testimony to us that if you make deals with the devil you not only get burned, but you become a slave to the devil. How many people refuse to trust God and then whatever they trust in becomes their new master and they become a slave to whatever they trust in them? God promises forgiveness. God promises freedom and, and, and life, but often we re- we reject him. We turn to other things, and our lives become a testimony of bondage and slavery. To nine, he, three
0: twelve says take.
1: And so here again at this point, we just see Ahaz becoming this slave to Tiglath-Plezer and trying to emulate some of the things in his own land that tiglath pleaser does. Well, when we get into chapter 17, just to kind of give you an overview of what's going on here. Chapter 17 is a sad summary to the end of Israel. It's a quick summary. The writer is not going to give us all of the gory details. He's really just wanting to show us that Israel got what they deserved. And what God is doing to Israel is, is what God said from the beginning He would do if His people forgot him. And so God is just being true to His Word. He's being true to the warnings He had given them all the way back at the beginning of His covenant with them. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 30 tells us that Hosea killed Pekah, the king of Israel. He was evil also. Tiglath-Pileser is followed in Assyria by a guy named... Shalmaneser. Hosea ends up being a vassal to Shalmaneser. You're going to be tested on this in a minute, okay? Hosea tries to make an alliance with Egypt. Shalmaneser finds out about this puts Hosea in prison. Shalmaneser so captures Israel, carries a lot of them away to Assyria. And verse 7 of chapter 17 and following gives the summary of why all of this
0: happened.
1: 7 to 23 pretty well becomes a summary of everything we've been studying in 1 and 2 Kings. Let's just begin reading there in verse 7 of chapter 17. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From Watchtower to Fortified City, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and statutes. He didn't want them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and salt omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel, he inflicted on them, "...and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Debat their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to sin a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through his servants the prophets." So the people of Israel, again this is the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria and they are still there. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutat, Abba, Hamath, and really hard name there, settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace (laughs) the Israelites they took over Samaria and lived in its towns. So again, you see what's going on here? The king of Assyria takes the people of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, or Israel, removes them from that area, takes them to Assyria, and then brings peoples in from the other nations and settles them in the northern kingdom and That becomes the area of Samaria. And then if we were to read on in chapter 17, because the beasts were killing the people, he's moved people out, I guess before more people moved in, wild animals had multiplied. The king of Assyria, though, was told... It's because, it was because the people were being disciplined by the God of Israel. So the king of Assyria allowed one of the priests whom he had taken away from Israel to Assyria to be brought back to Israel again so the people would be taught the ways of the Lord. But at the same time, he was teaching them not only the ways of the Lord... But it's believed that this priest was a compromiser too. And he's still allowing them to worship false gods. So did I lose you in all that? The the king of Assyria again takes the people of the ten tribes of Israel, takes them away to Assyria, wild beasts multiply, he moves other people in, and then because somebody convinces them God's discipline, he says, oh, oops, maybe I need to take one of the priests that I've removed from Israel and taken to Assyria, send him back, and maybe he can help people worship their God a little bit more and things won't be so bad. Beasts won't be killing people. And this priest teaches people the ways of the Lord, but also teaches them kind of the way they're going anyway. So what happens in the Northern Kingdom? The Northern Kingdom is just becoming this pluralistic weaving together of all kinds of religions. A little bit of the worship of Jehovah God or Yahweh, the God of Israel, and a little bit of worship of the gods of the peoples of the nation. Sound familiar? Chapter 17 ends by reminding us that all of this trouble has been brought on the northern kingdom or Israel because they broke covenant with God. They're only receiving the judgment That God had said from the beginning that they would receive. Remember, the covenant God made with Israel had blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. If the people obeyed God and followed Him, God would protect them and watch after them. If they disobeyed God then He would make certain they went the way of all the other nations before them and He would judge them and destroy them. Folks, God is only doing to Israel what He said from the get-go He would do if they disobeyed Amen. You reap what you sow, right? It's a warning to us. Hear me now tonight. God is true to His Word. He will keep His promises for good for us, but He will also bring about the bad He's promised if we disobey Him. God is long-suffering and patient, but there is a limit before His judgment finally comes. And let this be a warning to God's people today. People people want to believe that God is so loving that, oh, you'll hear people say something like, my God would never judge people. Oh, really? (laughs) Chapter 17 is a commentary on the fact that His judgment finally did arrive. Is God a God of love? Yes, He's a God of love. Is He a God of grace and mercy? Yes, He's a God of grace and mercy. But is God also a a God of judgment and wrath and judges sin? Yes, He does that too. What's all this say to nations and peoples today? There's a payday some
0: Look what we've done. Yeah.
1: Sure. There's a payday someday. God said earlier on. Remember in like Deuteronomy and Joshua, choose life and live. Obey me and live. But disobey me, and I will I'll deal with you and judge you. There's responsibilities in in the covenant. God initiated the covenant, pours out grace and mercy and goodness and love. But our responsibility is to trust Him and follow Him and obey Him. And to be a distinct people from the world. Not to be just like the world, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter that we're to be like pilgrims and strangers passing through. We're to be different. People today say, I don't want to stand out. Christians are supposed to be different. We're supposed to be salt and light. So, here again, at this point in Old Testament history, the ten tribes gone and what what we'll see now in Old Testament history is God will send Judah to the southern kingdom into Babylonian exile for 70 years but he'll bring them back resettle them in the land the Messiah will come through them God will discipline the southern kingdom but not destroy it He's protecting the line of David for the Messiah (coughs) to come. Any questions? Any comments? Richard? Uh, Years
2: ago, my wife and I had the privilege of going to a a, a Bible study run by two army chaplains from uh, Fort Monmouth Electronics School and a uh, chaplain school, and they were born again Christians, And uh, in those days, they could say what they wanted, but then the government stepped in, and then they uh, restricted what they could say about Jesus, you know, about compromise, Mm -hmm. and um, and so there was a lot of uh, defections from the uh, service of the chaplains. Eventually, the chaplain school was closed at Fort Monmouth, and. uh, I don't know if somebody gets shot in the battlefield and is dying and what do they say? They're made a force to be with you you can't <laughs> But when I went to a Bible study it was, they were free. Now they're not free in
0: chaplains. Yeah. 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 There. I remember a uh, chaplain's assistant when I was in getting in trouble. Crossway, he led some people to Christ that were of another faith. Hmm. And so, it's exactly what you're saying. Sure. Uh, they allow religion. They don't allow a relationship.
1: Right. Well, right now in our church here, we've got a fairly young man, young middle-aged man, gone through ministry training, got his MDF. He wanted to go into chaplaincy. Um, uh, And yet, some of the areas he was checking into, uh, they made it pretty clear to him, he could not be distinctly Christian. Mm -hmm. And so he said, no, I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it. And he is now pastoring one of the smaller churches in our association, and you've seen he and his wife here on Wednesday nights on occasion. Mm -hmm. Uh, You haven't seen them in a while. They're busy in their own ministry. But uh, anyway uh Charles Rogers. Yeah. For this very reason. He was pretty well told as a chap in some of the avenues he was looking into that he had to be pluralistic.
0: Yeah, well, you had only three denominations, I think, whenever I was in it, that, um Protestant. too many God. I was in such shock that I started to say which dog would you
1: choose to pray now, you know, a situation like this. But yeah. all my chapters everywhere now. Sure. And that's a challenge that Christian missionaries face when they go as missionaries to India because you say will you surrender your life to Jesus? Oh yeah. But what they mean is I'll add Him. I'm happy to add Him. One more one more God to my other gods? Yeah, I'll add another one and to, and to get them to understand, no, what we mean is forsaking
0: all others. You trust Him alone. I mean, something I've often wondered is when I'm in the military, the same chaplain, whatever you call him, took the four different services did the Jewish A Catholic version, a Methodist version, a Methodist. What did he really believe? Yeah, good question.
1: What was it? Yeah. And unless you think this discussion maybe doesn't relate, it does relate to what it became like in the Northern Kingdom, just sort of a pluralistic, free for all. And that's why when you come down to the New Testament the Jewish people did not even want to go through Samaria. Uh, They would cross the Jordan River, get on the eastern side of the Jordan River, go up to, uh, to the Sea of Galilee, cross westward back over and go down in Galilee so they didn't even have to go through Samaria. And what did Jesus say in John 4? I must must needs go through Samaria. He didn't avoid it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He went there and the woman there, yeah, yeah, Yeah. the woman at the well there, and then she went into town and told the townspeople, the Samaritans, Mm -hmm. I found a man that's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be him? They came out and they told her, now we not only believe because of your word, but we've seen for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Samaritans, though, they were despised by the Jews because the the Orthodox Jews looked at them as pluralistic compromisers that had just kind of woven everything together. So this, this right here that you're reading about here has very much application when you turn to your New Testament and start reading about the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans.